Okay, well, thank you for all uh, being here. And um, um, one of the uh, odd aspects of life at Chavagne over the last few years has been whenever conversation dries up at the dinner table with the teachers, they say, Mr. McDermott, tell us one of your olive custard, Mrs. Custard stories. <laughs> and, and Mrs. Custard, um, <laughs> Is, is Olive Custance, whom I've uh, kind of been frequenting, although she's long dead, uh, for the last few years, since I started getting interested in her about um, 2016, something like that. And I'm afraid it's a very banal story. I said to myself in um, 2015, who's been dead for 70 years that I could get interested in? Because then I could start talking about their poetry without having to worry about copyright. So I had a look on the internet to see who'd been dead for 70 years. And, two and there were dozens of people who came up. And there were two who stuck in my mind. The first one was Alan Lewis, who I'm going to move on to in 2021. So watch this space. Alan Lewis is the only real poet of the Second World War. There were, of course, there were dozens in the First World War. And he's a very interesting chap. Um, but the other person who came up was, was, Olive, with, was Olive Custance. And that rang a bell because when Robert used to work in the school here in Chavan, he showed me um, some biography. I can't remember whose it was now which had a few paragraphs about this Olive Custance. It was probably uh, the um, John Gray biography, wasn't it? The Brokaw Sewell? The because Brokaw he... Sewell about Olive Custance? No, about, about Gray, but he talks about her in it briefly, and he wrote about her elsewhere, but I haven't read his book on Custance. Ah, well, I'd be interested to see that because I, I haven't located that reference again that you showed me but I've, I've, I've seen it i've seen whatever he quoted quoted elsewhere but that would be interesting um sorry but of course brockard sewell was where i started with olive Custance because he was the only person who'd written a life of her um yes. at all and until about a year ago i was the only person who'd written more about her than brockard sewell <laughs> But now there's a whole Olive Custance industry. Uh, there are various people, I mean, in correspondence with all of them, who, who are interested in her. And it's all, you know, as, as Julie suggested, um, I mean, the main interest in Olive Custance, to be honest, um, is, is Olive Custance as supposedly a lesbian poet rather than as a poet. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, the it's it's a it's a it's a it's a vast oversimplification really and it's also anachronistic to describe her in that way but my interest in her um was really inspired by joe pierce because robert and joe and i worked together in the 90s and and uh, in about the year 2000 on a magazine called St. austin review which still exists and one of the things that um, really brought us together and we were, we were very much exercised about was this idea of literary biography um, and literary criticism that 
was interested in people for, for, for what they could, for the good that they could give us rather than, how can I put it, what makes people different rather than what makes people the same as everyone else. So we're not really interested in people's mistakes and, and, and we were more interested in what, what is original and interesting and special about people. And that was really um, the attitude that Joe had, uh, had taken in his literary biographical approach. Rather than giving people the frisson of discovering um, deliciously some writer who had made the same mistakes in life as they had, instead being inspired by um, the insights and originality and beauty of someone's work to make them live a better life. So, so this was this is this is the approach approach that Joe had taken with Chesterton, with even more with Oscar Wilde, with Roy Campbell, with all sorts of people like that. And so, um, my research about Olive Custance was. I wonder, that's interesting. So of course I read, Father, before I decided to commit myself to this relationship, I, <laughs> with this, this woman who'd been dead for 70 years, I thought, well, listen, I'll read Father Brockhart Cyril and see what he says. And of course, while the, what Father Brockhart Cyril said was, of the three or four people he most, was most looking forward to meeting in heaven, one of them was Olive Custance. So this intrigued me. And, um, the more and more I read about her, the more and more I realized um, that this was a real woman, a woman who had um, a certain pizzazz about her that unfortunately had been completely obscured by her relationship with um, a man who himself had been damned really by his, um, association with Oscar Wilde. So, in fact, nobody really knew anything about Lord Alfred Douglas, who was a much better poet than Oscar Wilde, except that he was associated with Oscar Wilde. And nobody knew anything about Olive Custance, if they knew anything at all about her, except that she was married to that man. So, uh, and, and in fact, the more I got to know about her, the more I, I discovered that she was, she was, very much an item in herself and like uh, the paper that I'm going to read to you in a minute um, is, is, is really uh, an effort at looking at some original unpublished material that I've discovered um, about the two of them. Um, it doesn't really talk about her conversion but from a, from, a, from a conversion point of view yeah of course she became a Catholic but she became a Catholic independently of her husband actually. Um, and what's more, to fill out the picture, um, Alfred Douglas himself became a Catholic in 1911. His wife became a Catholic in 1913 when they were living apart. And the correspondence I've seen um, shows Douglas, first of all, being slightly sore about the fact that she'd stolen his fire. <laughs> becoming a Catholic and then realizing it was a good thing and then uh, being kind of humbled by the fact that she's going off and reading all sorts of Spanish mystics that he's never heard of so th there's a depth to her that her husband didn't didn't really realize you know um, and then 
of course, these people are very unreliable people. They're, 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 and they're all a bit immature. Um, and that comes from privilege, the kind of privilege that these people had where they didn't have to do a day's honest work in their lives. And this, this didn't contribute to their kind of firm grasp on reality. So someone like Olive Customs, for example, you know, the fact that she's able to say in her diaries at various points, I spent the day in bed. I mean, you can only do that if you're from a certain class of society, you know? And... Um, Just like in Bloomsbury. <laughs> exactly. But, but yeah. also, even when you're extremely poor, you're extremely poor because you're having trouble paying your servants. <laughs> and, yeah. But to the extent that you have to, to change the food you eat and the wine you drink, because you, you, but having said that, the last possible thing you could do is actually go out and get a job. Yeah. So this, this was the life of a woman in those days, a woman who'd never been to school, in Olive Custance's case, who'd never been to university. Um, and, you know, so these things do tend to disconnect you from reality. And equally on the point of sexuality as well, those stories that we hear about Queen Victoria that she couldn't quite understand what was meant by, you know, close and intimate relationships between women. That would, that would apply to women like Olive Customs too. There's a lot of kissing and embracing and all this sort of thing, but outside of that, it's, it's, it's all a bit of a mystery because that was the way people were brought up at that time. So anyway, um, so here we are. I just want to make, make sure I've got the light right here because there seems to be... Yeah, well, I'm not so... That's a bit better there. Oh, can everybody see and hear me all right? Mm -hmm. mm. Anyway, Olive Custance was then the long-suffering wife of Lord Alfred Douglas the young man over whom Oscar Wilde lost his reputation, livelihood, and family. But at the same time, Lord Alfred was holding court in Oxford. If you remember, casting our minds back to the talks we've heard already. Um, uh, Alfred Douglas read the portrait of Dorian Gray and then met the man who'd written it. Uh, Lionel Johnson also famously read it twice, was it? And then he met them. I, I can't remember. Something yeah. like that. They, they'd all been reading this portrait of the uh, oh. of Dorian Gray before they met Oscar Wilde. Yeah. Um, but anyway, and then and then of course, um, when Oscar Wilde makes friends with this 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 circle of students uh, in Oxford, Lord Alfred Douglas is very much holding court there. But at the same time, Olive, who's only sixteen, who's a little bit younger is holding court in London. Um, so, uh, and she ventured into literary society very young, when she was 16, in the 1890s, and was surrounded pretty quickly by admirers of, of both sexes, some of whom you've heard of already. This 1890s London set, which Olive joined, was gathered around the publisher John Lane, the originator of the Yellow Book. Um, you, you, you'll have seen a graphic from the front cover of the Yellow Book on the website advertising this conference, which kind of gives you a sort of a flavor of this sort of decadent uh, artistic scene. And the Yellow Book was an, an eclectic periodical of poetry, fiction, and, and non-fiction prose as well. 
as well as art prints. Um, most notably, the distinctively languid cover, ca cover cartoons drawn by Beardsley. We've mentioned Aubrey Beardsley. He was also famous for all sorts of kind of quite obscene uh, cartoons as well, which he wanted to be destroyed when he became a Catholic when he was dying, but they, they never were. The Yellow Book cast its golden hue over a whole decade of London literary life and acted as a focus for a young group of poets who elicited the ire of critics because of their morals. In terms of the whole sweep of the Victorian epoch, they were a flash in the pan and, and they're, they're, they're suitably written off by David Newsom, if you've read that bit of uh, about the Victorian age where he, he gives the, the, the decadence a very short shrift. But this fin de siècle literary scene whose names are still known to us labelled rather imprecisely as decadence, included John Lane's reader, the accomplished writer and critic Richard Le Gallienne, the future Father John Gray, who was a London Barrow boy who, who taught himself a few languages and, um, you know, an autodidact. Uh, Ernest Dowson and Aubrey Beardsley. Young Olive was, of course, a respectable young lady, accompanied by her lady's maid on all occasions, and certainly didn't attend any of the Dionysian vigils, which these young men might have frequented. But John Lane hosted afternoon tea parties at the Bodley Head, and uh, she, she also conducted, this is Olive, uh, an, an epistolary flirtation with the Yellow Book's editor, the American novelist Henry Harland. He was older, he was married, and the exchange was sentimental but quite chivalrous. But it ran to thousands of words. And, and in fact, her, her letters to him were, were short. Well, they were, they were medium length, but his letters back were much longer. Another of her admirers was the now largely forgotten Scottish lyric poet, John Davidson. Davidson was immediately rather taken by the young Olive, who was only 16 or 17 and very pretty. And he made an eerie prophecy about her, predicting both the course of her poetry and also the nature of her marriage. It begins like this. At 16 years, she knew no care. How could she, sweet and pure as light? and there pursued her everywhere, butterflies all white. And it ends like this. There only came to her forlorn, butterflies all black. She herself has a poem called Butterflies, where she talks about, it's more or less about writer's block, but um, it seems to, to be remembering this, this, this poem from, from John Davidson who walked into the sea in 1909 and was never see again, seen again. Anyway, Richard Gallien, Le Gallienne spoke of Olive, Olive's personal flower-like loveliness, as well as finding her poems like a breath of fresh feminine air. Um, it was Richard Le Gallienne who incidentally was instrumental in making her a published poet, really. He was the one who brought her into the whole um, she, she, she submitted a manuscript of poems to him that she had really composed for John Gray, who was the, supposedly the, the, the man behind the, 
Dorian, the portrait of Dorian Gray, who became a canon of Edinburgh Cathedral eventually. Um, anyway, so Richard Le, 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 Le Gallienne says, she in instinctively understands some of the secrets of the use of words. This is all down to her symbolism, really, because, um, at least that's part of it, the power of individual words, but also the power of individual symbols, creating a mood, a feeling, um, not necessarily making sense, but painting a picture, you know? And that, 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 that touches on some of what we've heard this morning about French symbolism. The importance of her moods, the exquisiteness and strangeness of living, the mystic beauty of the world and all the glory and pathos it seems to mean in certain hours. Music played at twilight, the sound of rain, friends, flowers, friends as flowers and flowers as friends. This is Gallien, Le Gallienne talking. The sudden, wonderful face of love, fair as a shooting star, her own beauty and beauty of the morning sky, beautiful pain and the mysterious sadness of joy. Of such is the kingdom of earth for this young poet, and the words she finds for these moments are as rich and subtle and yet as simple as the moments themselves. Um, This idea, this this kind of flower-like, sparkly, airhead loveliness of air, of, 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 of Olive Custance is also portrayed in a roman à clé by Richard Le Gallienne, where he has her as one of the characters, and, and, and she's very much portrayed as this sort of mystic airhead, <laughs> if you like. In her adolescence, as we discover in her diaries and correspondence, she had dreamed of one day finding her fairy prince. And Prince was the nickname she gave to John Gray, the 16, well, the, 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 the Barrow boy, who was probably about 20, 21, when she met him when she was 16. Um, the handsome Gray, reputedly the model for, Olive, for, for Olive Oscar Wilde's Dorian Gray, was the first object of her girlish devotion and the first discerning audience for her poems, more importantly, many dedicated to him. He received them with a wry amusement. That's what he said in a letter to someone. And offered her sincere advice, but, and then this is her response to him, or at least that's the way I, I would see it, is her responding to him in poems, in poetry. You were indifferent, and I may forget your profound eyes, your heavy hair, your voice so clear, yet deep and low with tenderness, that lingered on my ears like a caress and roused my heart to make a futile choice. These lines notwithstanding, there was certainly a real complicity between the two. One scholar refers to Olive, to a letter from Olive telling her, sorry, telling her mother, how her mother prohibited her from being alone with the dashing East London poet and how Gray had converted her name for him, Prince of Dreams, to Prince of Breams. Bream is a kind of fish. And this was also part of the way that she was, they were, they, 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 people used to write to each other several times a day in those days, because they had several, they had five or six posts in London, like telegrams. And um, Prince of Breams was her code. 10 years after falling for John Gray, and only a, four, a few months after he surprised his friends by disappearing to Rome to study for the priesthood in the Scots College, even though he wasn't Scots, 
Olive decided to build a willow cabin at his gate, at the gate, at another gate. That's a quote, that's a reference to Twelfth Night, by the way, of Lord Alfred Douglas. Right? So remember this woman who has sort of tried to woo Henry Harland through correspondence, has tried to do the same with um, John Gray through correspondence, although she'd met him at parties. She now does the same with Lord Alfred Douglas, whom she hasn't actually met, although they did actually meet at a wedding when they were both about eight or nine or something. They had, yes, they'd met as children at a wedding and their families were known to each other, but they never met as adults. So Olive was attracted to him, mainly because he was a poet, but also because he was handsome and surely because she, re she relished a challenge. And she knew the story about Oscar Wilde, obviously. Um, but it, it, it wasn't at all clear to her what it all meant. This is very important to underline this. It wasn't at all clear to anybody in society, especially women, what it all meant. Whereas with John Gray, she had played the role of the princess, waiting for her prince to come, with Lord Alfred, she also played the doting page boy, like Cesario to Orsino in Twelfth Night, or Cesario to um, the Lady Olivia in Twelfth Night. Olivia wrote to him out of the blue, hoping to woo him by letter. She sent in her letter some pressed forget-me-nots and some recycled poems, which she had already written to John Gray. She wrote them out again in her handwriting <laughs> and now addressed them on the top to Lord Alfred Douglas. That's recycling. <laughs> mm -hmm. Adding one or two ones which mentioned his fair hair and blue, hair and blue eyes. Those had obviously been written for him. To Grey, she had written of a princess waiting for her prince. But now to Douglas, she wrote of the prince's arrival. They exchanged photographs, and with the help of Robert Ross, um, we heard today that Robert Ross and, and, and was present at the death of Oscar Wilde. Lord Alfred Douglas just arrived too late, but they were both friends of Wilde. Robert Ross owned a gallery in London, and he, and he, he facil facilitated their meetings in the gallery. Anyway, at 27, Olive was experiencing her first really successful romance. It wasn't for lack of trying. And at the same time, she was also being pursued by yet another admirer, this time a woman and an American called Natalie Barney. Now, Natalie Barney, a wealthy heiress and salon hostess in Paris, saw herself as a latter-day Sappho. I, mentioned, I need to mention that Sappho's main claim to fame at this time was that she was a woman poet. I mean, there are other things about Sappho that people will make a lot of hay over now. But the main thing about Sappho, when a new translation of her work came out at this time, was she was a poet and she was a woman. That was the main thing about Sappho. And it was while inquiring about a new translation of the works of Sappho that Barney heard about Olive Costance from her publishers, from John Lane. Soon after, on a holiday in Italy with Barney, because in fact what had happened was Natalie Barney wrote to Olive in the same way. This is the way things had happened in those days. Barney wrote to Olive and said, I've just read your, your book of poems called Opals. 
opal being a, a stone that you know you can't really make it out it changes a bit like oil in a puddle of water doesn't it you look at the different kind of rainbow colors of the opal so it's changeable so that was that that was the name of the the collection and so they arranged to go on holiday in italy anyway so soon after on this holiday olive annoyed her friend her new friend natalie by spending the whole time gazing at a photo of a classical statue of Antonus, whom she said reminded her of her new pen friend, Lord Alfred Douglas. This is important to mention that the first interesting thing that was happening in this relationship with Natalie Barney was she was talking about Alfred Douglas. Meanwhile, Natalie lay paralyzed in bed with a fever. And this is it's a quite a famous poem of, of um, uh, of Olive Custance is that critics have spent a lot of time talking about, mainly because um, in the light of some things that Walter Pater had said and so on, that poems about statues um, are important because you can talk about a statue um, and a statue isn't a real human being, if you see what I mean. It's a kind of an intermediary. So there was a kind of vague for a uh, vogue for poems about statues and anyway here is a poem about a statue uh written by by olive pastons um and uh, uh, there's there's an english writer dr sarah parker um who who and a few other people who are associated with her who, who make a lot of this because it's almost as if um, a woman writing a poem about a beautiful male statue is almost a sign that she's a lesbian. <laughs> Make that out if you can. <laughs> um, anyway, this is the poem. I spoke of you, Antonus, with her who is my heart's delight. That's Natalie. The while we watched the dawn of night through veils of dusk diaphanous, I praised your gracious loveliness as in cool marble it appears your eyes that seem too sad for tears, your smile that is, is a sheathed caress. And I, a freeborn singing child in this dull, solid age of ours, cried to my friend, O flower of flowers, worship him with me, but she smiled. She smiled and said with soft disdain, his statue cannot see or hear. If you should kneel forever, dear, he would not know you kneel in vain. Yet all night long, O oh my desire, I watched beside you pale and dumb. And now the silver dawn has come, the sky is stained with scarlet fire. The faint light widens to fair day round a white statue. The birds sing, but you will never wake my king, though love should kiss your lips away. But he did act, in fact awake. And so it was that less than two years after Oscar Wilde's death, the two young poets, Alfred Douglas and Olive Custance, married in March 1902 in London by special license and without the permission of Olive's parents. To the great disgust of the king, who had already um, sent a letter of congratulations to Olive and her family on her engagement to someone else. Anyway, we'll come on to that in a minute. Um, Lord Alfred Douglas, still disgraced at home in Britain, had in fact just sailed to America 
in search of a rich heiress to marry and thereby to put an end to his financial woes. But his heart was not in it. And when Olive instead became engaged to a rich school friend of Douglas's, they'd been at Winchester together, George Montague, the jealous poet rushed back and talked her out of it. Their hastily and secretly organized marriage caused quite a scandal. George Montague, although younger, had been an intimate friend when they were boys at Winchester and ever since. So it can be reasonably described as a love triangle or a quadrangle, if you include Natalie Barney in Paris. She had supposedly envisaged marrying Douglas as a way of inducing Olive to live with her too in a kind of menage a trois. Despite its inauspicious and unorthodox beginnings, the marriage did last for a very long time. Much to everyone's surprise, through all the welter of mud and stones, as Douglas himself described it. It was, however, marked with sadness and conflict, mainly over custody of their son, Raymond, and the interference of Olive's father, the overbearing Colonel Custance. Um, Raymond, of course, when, when, became a Catholic. The, the son became a Catholic when the father became a Catholic. And so the son was first to Ampleforth and then kidnapped by the father and taken away to, to Fort Augustus in Scotland, where the Scottish monks cooperated with the illegal kidnapping. Um, and, and then the Colonel Custance, the grandfather, sent a box of chocolates to the son in, in Fort Augustus with a letter in it saying, why not um, come and live with your granddad? And, um, and so the boy was abducted back. So this was the kind of context of, of, of what was going on as well. And then the parents were kind of both very immature parents. Anyway, it was, um, it's been observed by Nancy Hawkey, who was a, a the, apart from Brockett Sewell, one of the only other early scholars of this life of this Olive Customs back in the 1970s and 80s. Um, the Olive's energies were mainly expended in coping with her husband. Raymond was diagnosed as schizophrenic, probably more of the bad blood of the Douglases, and eventually died in a mental hospital in 1964, a broken man. His chances of married bliss had been shattered long before when his father exposed the only serious lady friend of his life as a gold digger who lied about her age and social standing, which is a very sad situation. She lied about her age to, to, to the extent of 10 years. <laughs> and she tried to talk very posh as well. <laughs> Mental fragility was rife in the Douglas family, but Lord Alfred was never diagnosed as anything in particular although posthumously he, he has been diagnosed as, as having bipolar disorder. The public record of his narcissism and pig-headedness, on the other hand, is pretty conclusive because he was rarely out of the courts, suing or being sued for libel. And yet since Shakespeare, there have been few men who have written such beautiful sonnets. He certainly had a poetic talent, which has now been forgotten, sadly, but was usually, and also during his lifetime and subsequently was occluded by the shadow cast by Oscar Wilde. Here are two exquisite sonnets dedicated to Olive from 1907. 
My thoughts like bees explore all sweetest things to fill for you the honeycomb of praise. Linger in roses and white jasmine sprays and marigolds that stand in yellow rings. In the blue air they moan on muted strings and the blue sky of my soul's summer days shines with your light. And through pale violet ways, birds bear your name in beatings of their wings. I see you all bedecked in bows of rain, new showers of rain against new risen suns, new tears against new light of shining joy. My youth, equipped to go, turns back again, through, throws down its heavy pack of years and runs back to the golden house, golden boy. When we were pleasure's minions, you and I, when we mocked grief and held disaster cheap and shepherded all joys like willing sheep that love their shepherd, when a passing sigh was all the cloud that flecked our April sky, I floated on an unimagined deep. I loved you as a tired child loves sleep. I lived and laughed and loved and knew not why. Now I have known the uttermost rose of love. The years are very long, but love is longer. I love you so, I have no time to hate, even those wolves without. The great winds move all their dark batteries to our fragile gate. The world is very strong, but love is stronger. In the first of these two, it's difficult not to see in Douglas's love for Olive, a kind of rediscovery of innocence. In Sonnet 4, she's like a forgiving mother. Without her, sorry, with her, he can become an innocent boy again, leaving behind what he now began to view as his sordid past. In Sonnet 5, it's the second one I read to you, he can fall into her arms as into the arms of childish sleep, and he feels safe with her. She is his refuge in the storm. This, he decides, is not an ephemeral connection, but a relationship which will define his life as the two breaks in the amb iambic pentameter uh, testify, longer and stronger. It's a little bit like Sonnet 116, where there's shaken and taken, you know, let us not to the marriage of two minds admit impediment. There's this um, breaks in rhythm. And here you've got the years are very long, but love is longer. And at the end, the world is very strong, but love is strong. So you've got those two um, words that kind of jump out. Because Douglas, like Shakespeare, doesn't add an extra syllable by mistake. So there's always a reason for it. Initially, I was drawn to Douglas, nicknamed Bosey from childhood, because he was Beau, for the quality of his... Somebody else is coming in. For the quality of his writing, the pathos of his personal story, the fascinating aura of Wilde, and also by the drama of his deep and enduring conversion to Catholicism in the context of his relationship with Wilde and in the particular circumstances of his family and upbringing. It's worth noting that his mother also became a Catholic. Uh, even his father, the Marcus of Queensbury, who was the president of the National Secular Society, and he was very, very much against religion, also became a Catholic on his deathbed. <laughs> 
um, and, and, and apologize for being horrible to his wife, whom he'd humiliated by taking a mistress and all sorts of things like that. So the whole family, they all, be, they all became Catholics eventually. Um, so, but this, I mean, the, the interest in, in, in Douglas himself uh, was before I fell in love with his wife. I mean, you know, you know platonically speaking or at least with the picture of her that emerges from her poetry and life story. And when one gets involved in a marriage like theirs, well, how can I put it? It's just very difficult not to take sides. <laughs> and more and more, I found myself taking Olive's side. For much of their married life, Bosey and Olive spent time apart, even when things were going well. And in the early years, this phrase pops up in, in a lot of the letters. Boy gone, girl left. Boy gone, girl left. It well describes their habit of passing like ships in the night. It was very much a commuter marriage. Bosey was often shooting in Scotland or on business in the city. Olive would visit her friends or her father in Norfolk. And so they developed a kind of studied, almost artificial correspondence which both of them knew would one day be the subject of study for scholars. Perhaps it has something to do with the fact that their courtship too was, was an epistolary courtship. Custance had, let us remember, already made romantic overtures by letter to two other 1890s poets, John Gray, later Canon John Gray, and the American Henry Harland. So she developed a talent for it. In those days, the postman called several times a day in London, and they also sold stamps at the door. People often asked him to wait for a few seconds for them to compose a reply. In London especially, it was almost like sending an email, as we do today. Sometimes they even scheduled, scheduled telephone conversations by letter, can you believe it, for later in the day. But as poets, the letter, fortunately for, not, for us, seems to be their preferred method of communication. There's a kind of ostentatious drama in much of it. Their declarations of love seem to take place in front of a wider audience than merely the beloved. But it is sadly the same when Bosey uses the written words to solemnize his hateful feelings, including calling her a witch on one occasion and saying, I hate you. By 1911, their marriage had already lost some of its luster. And at about that time, that was when, that was when um, he became a Catholic, actually. <laughs> um, a crash of thunder, this is Olive writing now, a crash of hunt thunder, this, this has never been published before. A crash of thunder overhead drowned the last bitter word you said. I turned away from your angry eyes to watch the lightning in the skies. But concludes hopefully, a golden sun is in the dim west gleaming, scattering all the shifting, streaming silver fringes of glittering rain. Come, let us kiss and be friends again. Olive writes sometime in 1913 or possibly 1914, certainly you have written to me the most beautiful sonnets in the world because you are a great poet, but you have never really loved me as I have loved you. I did not expect it. I only hoped you to be kind to me. But you have been very cruel to me, and your letters are the worst of all. 
close friends and relations all knew the terrible effect that Bosie's written curses, and sometimes they were literally just that, could have on Olive. Wommy, the nickname, nickname Bosie's sister, wrote to Olive about Bosie's poison pen, saying that she was worried that otherwise the letters will begin again and something must be done about all this. And it was about this time, 1913 or so, that Olive, of her own volition, and by her own initiative, also became a Catholic in St. Anne's in Vauxhall, beautiful church, if you ever go there. Um, her husband was invited to the ceremony. They weren't living together at the time. Um, as I say, it's 1913, about two years after her husband. A hitherto unpublished poem by Lord Alfred Douglas is a good example of the ability which he had to nurse a sense of personal hurt into a sense of invincible and righteous indignation. Although he did not include it in his published collections, he must have known that in sending it to his wife, which he did at some time between 1930 and the late 1920s, no idea exactly when, because it's typed, it would eventually reach a wider audience, the gallery of public opinion before which he was always justifying himself. Even when he'd calmed down, he still had to be in the right to have the last word. In this quite deliberately and abruptly curtailed sonnet, an octet with no sester to follow, he describes Olive as helplessly hard-hearted. If you don't know about sonnets, you have eight lines where you set up some sort of tension, and then the last six lines you sort of resolve it in a clever way. That's the way they usually work. So here the tension set up, but there's no resolution. That's, that's the sort of idea of having a curtailed sonnet. I can't say I've ever seen it before, but maybe someone else has done the same thing. But anyway, this is obviously a sonnet that's missing six lines, and that's the way it was conceived. To Olive. Dark green the olives grow, black, black the stones. The wood is hard, the green leaves show. Why this? Sunwards green whitened sympathy below the Judas-tempered essence of his kiss. No sympathies with any human groans, Still, Olive, I have you and you have me, both to exist forever in the press, except for love of the world's bitterness. The iambic pentameter, the appeal to scripture, and the lexicon of biblical words give Bosey an almost pontifical authority. The capitalization spells out his counterclaim to her assertion that you have never really loved me as I loved you. No, Olive, both. Love, they're all capitals. Perhaps his initial capitalization of the press refers not just to the violence of their suffering, like an olive press, pressing down the olives, um, but also to the way in which much of their marital strife was enacted in the public gaze, self-inflicted, self-promoted, and destined to be kept alive in literary correspondence, which would be published after their deaths and forever in the press. The curtailing of the sonnet form is particularly significant. Often the tensions and problems set up in the first eight lines of a sonnet are somehow re resolved in the last six. For example, in the first three of his sonnets to Olive, he wrote seven, where the sestets begin with yet, yet, and but, respectively. But for them, he thought, I suppose, there was no resolution except for love. 
In a similar poem, which did find its way into the collected poems, he again gives Olive and Raymond, the son, the same Judas treatment. This is over the fact when the son is taken into custody by the grandfather. There was a big report in the tablet about it at the time, where he said he would never speak to them again. <laughs> um, Jane Stevenson, reviewing Caspar Winterman's biography of Bosey in the Telegraph, had this to say of the other poem. Self-pity came as naturally to Douglas as solipsism, and before a crucifix, he identifies his betrayal by wife, child, friend, with that of Christ betrayed by Judas. His son, the wretched victim of a custody battle, whom he kidnapped, preferred living with the grandfather. To represent this as a betrayal somewhat suggests a lack of empathy. But Douglas was slow and deliberate in writing his sonnets. He cannot have written both at the same time. To return to the same finger-wagging theme of betrayal, probably years later, like a dog to its vomit, and then send it to your wife in order to cause her pain in a letter, is to my mind the act of a sanctimonious cad, however Catholic. He is not lashing out an extremist, which one could more easily understand and forgive. His tone is recollected, unnervingly calculated. When Olive read Bosey's biography in 1929, she must have bit her lip over the way in which she had been portrayed. All she knew before she read it, yeah, they died in the 40s, so this, this is, he wrote this biography in 1929. Um, all she knew before she read it was that she'd given permission to Bosie to quote from her early love letters, where she talks about him as a prince and all this sort of thing. The request to do this must have touched her, but in the end, Bosie used these letters to her fairy prince to bolster his ridiculous claim that Olive loved him less as he grew more and more manly. She would always, she was always very discreet about her private life and would not have appreciated being portrayed as a lesbian in order to take the heat of her husband, which is exactly what is happening in that, in that passage. Uh, incidentally, there's this big book, Lord Alfred Douglas's um, biography of 1929. He's been married to Olive for a long time because they married in 1902. He hardly ever mentions her in his autobiography. Um, So it makes me think of, of, of Rousseau and his confessions, who can never seem to confess to anything without impugning someone else's honor at the same time. A particularly surprising element of the autobiography is that apart from making this particular point in the early pages, Douglas mentions his wife almost not at all in the rest of the book, even after 20 years of marriage, over 20 years of marriage. And yet, in the end, I have to love poor Bosie, if only for Olive's sake. She is, in 1929, still the delicate and beautiful flower that Richard de Gallienne so admired in the 1890s. The gentle and forgiving soul who really did love her fairy prince right up to the end. They died in the 1940s, incidentally. 1944, she had a brain hemorrhage which was quite a nasty way to go. She didn't go immediately, it took her a day or two. And um, 
she was friendly with Montague Summers, <laughs> all those sort of crazy people who lived in Brighton at the time. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Mary Stopes as well was part of their circle. She was friendly with them both. Um, and interestingly, one of the things that she said a couple of weeks before she died, I've been such an idiot to, to drop the faith, she said. She said, since I've stopped practicing Catholicism, it's just brought me bad luck. That's what she said to him. And she said, as soon as I get better, because she was a bit unwell, as soon as I get better, I'm going to go back to the sacraments. And then she had a brain hemorrhage and died. So um, you could say that, I mean, I would, I would say, uh, Doug, Douglas was all cut up about this and went to Mary Stopes and, and complained and, and, and said to her how distressed he was that she hadn't gone back to the sacraments. But equally, um, he, he, he took comfort from the fact that a couple of weeks before she died, she, she said that she wanted to go back to the sacraments. Anyway, she had an Anglican funeral in the end and she was cremated and her ashes were scattered at sea. But she died holding his hand and they lived, they lived a few doors away from each other for the last 15 years of their lives, something like that, in Hove, uh, maybe 20 years. And, and in fact, when their marriage was difficult, she even wrote in her diary, if only we could have separate houses in the same street. <laughs> and that is how they ended their marriage. Anyway, I just want to finish with a little uh, few lines here about her forgiving nature after her being kind of savaged in the biography, really, and being accused of not loving him, which was just, just completely untrue. He was just a very difficult person to live with. I think I may let her have the last solemn word in this uncollected poem, which she wrote for him as a reply to his book. She wrote this back to him when, when she, she saw the copy of the 1929 autobiography. So my idea of her, her, her reaction to the biography is not just speculation, it's just based on this poem. This is real, enduring, forgiving, understanding love, and without the least hint of rancor or selfishness, Bosie was blessed. And here's the poem. And she's a sort of an old lady by this point. She's quite ill, you know. Oh, never again have I loved, dear heart, as I loved you. I gave you my girl's passion like a cup of golden wine, triumphant that you drank and drained it up, that you were mine. And you were all my joy and all my pride, mine to adore. I lived to love you and I would have died to love you more. You were beautiful like a bright sky at daybreak in the spring. Yes, proud and beautiful and brave and shy like a young king. And round us an old dragon coiled the world, hungry for our delight, hating our laughter and our scorn that hurled its weapons out of sight. Furious to find that our indifferent ears were deaf to its cold jibes, its flatteries even, and its foolish tears, and all its golden bribes. For we were young and wayward, caring less what people thought or said than that a ruffled curl or tumbled tress should mar a lovely head. Thinking that a ribbon knotted or a jewel gone astray, more cause for sorrow. And that our foe, that then that foes are cruel or friends betray. Because we had each other and the flowers and all earth's delight 
the birds, the animals, days, dancing hours, the spangled night, the fields, the forest, and the shining sea, blue waters and blue sky. How gay we were, not knowing what would be. Careless and gay and blind, we could not see our future, you and I. But sometimes after storms, the rainbows rise, those skies be overcast. And lovers look into each other's eyes and smile at trouble past. Mm. So let us smile. So let us to forget our bitter tears and kiss away the sorrow and regret of all those years. For never again have I loved dear heart as I loved you. Olive Custance, Lady Alfred Douglas, March 1929. Anyway, I mean, I've gone on enough, but you can see that part of my motivation um, in researching and writing about Olive, Olive Custance was really that not only has she been forgotten, but she'd been sort of instrumentalized and, and misrepresented as, as a very beautiful and gifted and sparky lady um, who sort of had a ruined life, but still loved her husband. And, um, and I found that very, very moving moving thing. And, and, and what I'm trying to do now at the moment is to draw together all the poems that I found that hadn't been published and um, with the permission of the estate, make a collected poems sometime next year um, with a 30 or 40,000 uh, biographical notes at the beginning, word at the beginning and a few notes for the poems. Um, just so that she can get a bit of a wider audience because she's not a bad poet actually she's been she's sort of been written off as a bit of an airhead <laughs> but in fact in her day uh, the funny thing was in the 1890s Oscar Wilde his poems they were limited editions of 20 or 30 100 copies you know Lord Alfred Douglas similarly very very limited editions nobody knew them whereas Olive Custance she was in the Pall Mall Gazette and all sorts of things like that she was writing for, for general consumption. Ordinary working class families around the fire would read her poems, even when she was 17 or 18. Um, she had a different vision of what it was to be a poet. Um, and, and right through, when I found poems of hers in 1920, 1925, in Country Life and magazines like that, right through until she was quite an old lady, um, still writing poetry writing poetry about, for example, the, the soldiers going off to World War II, the brave boys and very patriotic sort of things like that. Um, so she was, in a way, she was more of a, um, and the whole idea of her being a, 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 a part of the decadent movement, well, she was there, she was part of it, but as Brockard Sewell says, that her, her decadence was more striking a pose than anything else. You know, she, 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 she's, um, she's a phenomenon all of her, all of her own, really, and, and, and sadly neglected, as, as is her husband, who, although he was a bit of a nasty piece of work, his <laughs> relationships was a very, very good poet. Anyway, that's, thank you. Thank you very much. Now, how, what, what's the time now? How are we doing? One minute to four, well, to five over there. Okay.
I have a question for you if I if this yeah, if yeah, the, if the, I can 